Hello fellow Blue Earthers and welcome to another episode of The Pod. My guest this week is Sir Tim Smith. Famous for his work on the Lost Gardens of Heligan and the Eden Project in Cornwall, Tim is refreshingly frank and has endless ideas about how we can make a world a better one. He teases what he'll be speaking about at this year's Blue Earth Summit, why he believes society has the tools to change but lacks the willpower, and what a flourishing world looks like to him. Hello, Tim. It's lovely to have you on the Blue Earth pod today. Oh, it's great to be here. Are you sat at Eden Project HQ right now? I am. I am in my marvellous office, which is surrounded by wonderful photographs that I've collected over the years and articles that I don't want to forget because of my hatred of how computers steal information from you. It's your memory having it stolen from you. So I like to make everything that has impressed me, I nail it to my wall. And then people come in and they say to me, bloody hell, what a war. And I explain why I do it and they go, oh, I'd like to do that. I haven't thought of that. So every six weeks I walk around my room and I take probably two hours to look at everything on my wall. And if it's now no longer relevant, I put it in the bin. But most, mostly it's just growing exponentially. It's not exponentially, it's growing by a few articles a week. It does look more like an artist's studio with inspiration all over the wall, wall. And those spaces are the nicest spaces to work in. Really cool. Really cool. Tim, in your keynote speech at last year's Blue Earth Summit, you covered everything from the Bible to central government. What are you going to be talking about this year? I'm not entirely certain. I mean, I think there are some really big issues coming up in society about um, the nature of citizenship as against um, consumerism and the way that we absorb or consume the world, our appetites, if you like. And I'm fascinated by visions of the future where so many of them are written by middle-aged men and are so impoverished because they write them as if here is a thing that is going to go into huge advance, you know, as opposed to a system that is going to go into terrific advance. And I'm fascinated by the sort of narrative coming out of the world uh, of research and into application, like uh, the, the world of uh, fermentation technology with food, the so-called green food movement, which is going to represent huge Huge change. I mean, the, the the thing is, because farming, for example, has always been seen as something rather quaint and romantic, we've built up a huge amount of mythology about farming. And we tend to set it in counterpoint to, I think it's to do with little red tractors, to be honest, but I, I, we, we have failed to see how appalling farming as a generality has been for the soil. And I think the big battleground over the next 15 years is going to be about the health of our soil and how we can protect future generations from it. So I'm very interested in the story of agriculture, where it is going, what that means for localism. Muscular localism is, I believe, our future. And I think one of the things that has happened with um, the COVID pandemic has been that it has made a lot of people who who well, wherever they live, suddenly think, how resilient are we where we are physically? And how can we make ourselves resilient? I certainly know that here in Cornwall, there's been a very significant discussion about loyalty to local producers. And you've seen, for example, a lot of the supermarkets here in Cornwall have, since post-COVID, have been stocking a much wider range of local produce as they've seen 
the degree of loyalty that is being shown to the traditional greengrocers and butchers and so on. Luckily, I think the Cornish themselves are far more deeply loyal than that. And you see in many of the areas, in many of the more urban areas, you know, St. Austell, Camborne, Truro, Redruth, Hale, all those places, you see the emergence of a retail class, which is based on people's deep-seated feeling that it's good to be have localism. And it's no longer a hippy-dippy thing. It's actually, this is muscular. And I think the next stage of all this is going to be to ask, where else can we be local? So I'll be talking, I think I'll be talking about muscular localism. I'll be talking about 3D printing and the end of the supply chain. So we're partnered by Volvo here at Eden, and they've given us a number of vehicles. And I've hosted a, a couple of podcasts with them talking about the future. And what's really interesting is that they believe that within, it's a rather accurate figure, 17 years, but they reckon within 17 years, they'll have no supply chain, that they will actually be a digital constructor and there will be depots all over the world that will print the parts you need or the things you need where you are. That's going to be an astonishing thing because if that's replicated in business throughout, you'll see that other than fresh food, there will be very little that cannot be made at distance, i.e., your white goods, your television, every, everything you can imagine really could be mended, repaired at distance and things either at distance or made locally using things. And at Eden, for example, we're talking to a 3D printing company in Italy about building a hotel here using 3D printing of all of the materials around our pit. Is it possible to build a really beautiful, uh, beautiful hotel using only materials that you found within 10 miles, say, of where you are, importing nothing. To what degree can you get that? And it's really astonishing how close you, it looks as if you can get. The thing is the willpower. But once you start deciding you're going to do things, that means that people who want work from you have to start, suddenly start thinking about how the hell they're going to fulfill your contractual thing. Money talks with change. So that was a very long womble about what I'm going to talk about. But I'm really interested. I'm very interested in the impact of local power, local empowerment, and the purpose of democracy, because if you if you change the world as much as I believe it will be changed in 15 years time, what do you need central government for? I think you um, talked about willpower, actually, in your opening uh, speech of last year's summit and how, you know, we have all the technology right now. It's just we're not angry enough. Um, I think you you said something about um, how people only listen if somebody says something absolutely nuts. And right now we're just being totally boring and that we need to up the game. No, I think I think that's right. I think perhaps if we go away from nuts, I think one of the things which I'm sure fascinates you as much as it does me is the degree to which an establishment that is tired starts to just adopt the language of novelty, but doesn't actually anymore have any novelty left in it. So you find a language of innovation and creativity and people having leading edge thoughts, cutting edge, leading edge, all, all of those cliches. And the more of those words you hear, the more and more certain you can become that the institution or individual concerned uh, is the antithesis of those words. I'm particularly interested. I got, I, I, I'm very influenced and fired up by a book. Well, I've been fired up by several this year, actually. But one of them was by Professor Avi Loeb called uh, Extraterrestrial, which you may have caught. It was a book that came out very early this year about uh, an incident in October 2017 where some 
unidentified object came through space, obviously from deep space, not from our Milky Way. It swung past Earth, and then as it swung past Earth, did something remarkable. It changed its course in a way that was completely not consistent with everything we know about gravity and how things should operate. And Avi Loeb's book, Extraterrestrial, was about is actually about the event itself of that thing. Uh, but more importantly, it's about the response to that thing from the scientific community who behaved in a really strange way. They could find no explanation from it for it other than that it was an extraterrestrial thing, but were completely unprepared to speculate what it might be. He said the absolutely amazing thing, of course, is that these are the same people who are recommending grants of hundreds of millions of pounds for theoretical physics to study parallel universes, and they're not prepared to look um, at what's actually happening uh, in reality. I mean, it's actually fascinating because he, his gauntlet, which he throws down, is that the scientific establishment has become so conservative and so perverted by the system of grant gifts and things like that, that it basically you have a effectively an echo chamber of people judging each other's work in the knowledge that the people they are judging will at the next round be judging them. Therefore, you've created a completely cosy set of certainties and real science is actually the loser for this. And he says very memorably in the book, he said how ironic it is that almost all of these people would cite as one of their inspirations and heroes, Galileo, and yet almost all of them have become the very people that would have wanted to put Galileo on the stake. It's quite chilling. In short, then, funding for science goes to necessary truths. Um, I, I'm not sure it's even as simple as that. It is that many of the great scientific researchers are working in places where they're always going to be successful because the people that are judging it to be successful will always say so, so they can all get their snouts in the trough. This is a huge exaggeration to make a point. The point is that our universities, our great research organisations, are fit for maybe the middle of the 20th century, but they're not fit for answering the challenges of the 21st. The 21st century needs to be a period, in my view, but I'm not alone in this, this isn't a unique thought, where we return, if you like, to some of the scientific principles that you saw with um, what was called natural philosophy, but it was effectively... The study of everything as it was, say, Darwin, Lyle, Huxley, all those guys, where everything was interesting, it was seen as systemic, everything was part of a system, whereas we've got into the colonisation of knowledge where you can't just be a physicist, you've got to be a geophysicist or a chemical geophysicist or whatever, and that's your territory, and you will own that territory, and no one else will know that territory, but you own it. That knowledge isn't made available in transdisciplinary ways to everybody else. And you notice that scientists don't like transdisciplinary because transdisciplinary means it's really more difficult to get research money because you don't know whose research it is anymore. They don't really even like interdisciplinary unless you can actually define whose trough it's coming from. I'm not saying all scientists are governed by troughs. What I am saying, though, is that most of the major um, academic institutions in the world today are now corporations. Their vice-chancellors are no longer pillars of academic excellence. They are CEOs. And it's created a really strange culture of farming foreign students, for example, in Britain and America, of being 
perverse in not seeing that the not the knowledge banks that we're creating are absolutely crucial in the national interest to solve a whole bunch of problems which are clear and presently dangerous. And if we do not solve them, we will die. In the most practical um, sense, or if you could hash out the practical details, what would a flourishing world consist of for you? I actually think a flourishing world would be where we accept certain things as being of the commons, of the common wheel, the commonwealth. We know, all of us, that it is essential for our survival that we have clean water and access to it, that we have clean air and the right not to be poisoned by it, and that we have fertile soil that can grow things. Therefore, be a place in which the conditions that enable those three things to happen are the very basis. In an ideal world, we'd have systems whereby we fed ourselves so that everybody could be nourished where we had a rich cultural vein where our stories were told to each other and became shared where our care for future generations was taken and responsibility borne by the wider community not just the family but of course the family is the starting point and we start to tease out a vision of is there a purpose to being a human being i don't have the comfort of religion but if i If I look at the way we all are, it feels to me that many of us, probably myself included, are suffering a sort of spiritual starvation in terms of meaning, whatever you call it, has got to be there. There's got to be more to our life. Even if we have to make it up, there's got to be more to our life than just the rather arid act of consuming. There's got to be the act of relationship. There's got to be in relationship, we're talking about things that are not transactional. We're talking about gifting within a community. I mean, as you know, community comes from two Latin words, communos, together in gift. It is about acting us into being. So I would say the biggest challenge for our culture is to recognize that the isolation, the fractures of intimacy that we've created with our consumerist world and our feeling that emotions are perhaps also something that are consumed and discarded has led us really, we're all really befuddled, all of us a bit befuddled about what belonging means. My friend William Bird, who is considered by many to be the father, only because he's male, of the um, social prescription movement, he made a brilliant speech some weeks back in which he was addressing about a 100 headmasters and the civic leaders of Eastbourne in Sussex and he said you know I'm a general practitioner and when my patients smoke that doesn't worry me very much when they drink too much that doesn't worry me too much if they take drugs which could be harmful to them it still doesn't worry me too much and you know why because by more than a factor of a hundred times the biggest killers in our country are loneliness a lack of sense of belonging and a lack of sense of purpose. If you can make those things right, you will have a healthy country. And I think that's actually, of course, it's a generalisation. But I think we're just not kind enough to us. We've persuaded ourselves to a script that is industrial revolution to do with productivity, and to a degree being owned by a class superior to us. We need to grow out of that and realise that we're one of the gifts of the age we live in is that it might just be possible for us all to live with a degree of abundance, 
without being enslaved to manufacture, but having a menu, if you like, of activities in civil society to which you will contribute if you're not going to be contributing taxes. You know, it, it's a. am phrasing this really clumsily and anybody listening is probably going to take huge issue with me because it feels a little motherhood and apple pie. But I guess to sum up, I am very confident that a decentralized muscular localism, I'm talking about economically, a powerful independent personality to wherever we live, where the emotional intelligences of those that live there is embedded where you are, will lead to a much healthier world. And the question that comes out of that is, what is necessary to achieve that? And what's necessary to achieve that is to empower a word which has horribly been abused, but to empower civic society to have enough knowledge to be able to transact those things which are necessary to manage the technologies and social morphologies of wherever they live. So if you think it's ridiculous, we live in a world in which my local Cornwall County Council has a budget every year, the size of a small multinational, multinational company. And the poor people that are elected to run it are expected to, you know, many of them are, you know, like ourselves, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, you know, wide range of life experience. And we're supposed to be able to work out how to not just spend, because anybody can spend, it's a, it's a judging the balance of the sum, the sum total and squaring out how you get maximum return for society from it. These are great gifts. Uh, it, I think we, we put great pressure on our civic leaders to deliver things which they are, A, not trained to do, and B, we, the consumer, has been so milk-fed that we believe their duty is to give us what we want, where we ourselves will not take responsibility for the cost of our appetite. So each politician, in order to get elected, has got to promise that which it knows in advance it cannot afford to give, and we, the electorate, will not acknowledge that they can't afford to give it, so we know that we're going to be disappointed from day one which seems to me to be a ridiculous devil's bargain, doesn't it to you? Yes. <laughs> so just picking up on some of those points you made about mental health, as somebody who spends so much time in nature, would you say that being outdoors contributes to better mental health? Personally, I have never had any mental health issues which have been debilitating. I'm quite sure that like everybody there are blind spots in my personality, which I may fail to recognize. I mean, I think a good friend of mine who runs a disability trust said, be aware that everybody is disabled, but only a minority is invisible. And I think that's quite nice. However, I think, take nature out of it for a moment. I think, for example, we do a lot of work with mental health and gardening at Eden. And we do a lot of health projects where we get people together to do walking the world with COPD, for example, we get people come in that can only work, walk about five meters. After a couple of weeks, they're doing 15, 20. After half a year, they're doing a kilometer. And the thing is that they're making friends. They're making friends and people are supporting each other. And the health giving benefits of you, A, you've got something to go to and has meaning to you, but then finding out that other people really actually like you and want to be part of what you're doing and they're encouraging you to really very very moving to see these people who just weeks before didn't know each other just being massively encouraging and then after months you discover they're all going on holiday together and doing things like that and it's just brilliant absolutely brilliant and that thing about a sense of purpose 
A sense of purpose and sense of belonging. Belonging, I think, can be used in two ways. One is, I am of this place. I am part of the DNA of this geography, um, and I understand it. But the other thing in all of it, I think, is to do with the loneliness, the deep loneliness that people have when they think as they get up in the morning, no one cares whether I live or die. No one will worry about me if I'm gone. And there is nothing more uplifting than having people wanting you to be there, wanting you to be part of a gang of people, a team of people. And I think we've perhaps become far too shy of using those lovely words about kindness, generosity. And, and let's call it what it is, love. Where actually you show love in terms of the wider sense of your affection and preparedness to uh, skate over people's weaknesses and focus on their strengths. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to feel needed. And if you don't have those two things, you'll have a reckless loneliness at your heart, which will lead you into all sorts of things. Because if other people don't care about you, it will actually encourage you to not care about yourself. And very soon, you'll start to loathe yourself because of your own sense of misery at the state you've fallen into. And one of the ways out of that is to create a really strong society, a civic thing where people have excuse to work together and people are appreciated and there are moments and events and social things where people break bread together. And this is very tribal, but it, it, it's tribal in a good way. It's, it's about, you know, you may think differently to me, but hail friend, isn't it good to be close to the fire? Draw close. And I think, I think it's difficult. I don't know what you think, but I think we're living in a largely secular age now where even those who have religious leanings in the formal sense are questioning the, uh, is the right word, dualism of what we're supposed to be lauding in terms of our going to a church or a mosque or a temple and the reality of what happens outside the doors of that place. And yet I know when I look to my young people in my life, my, my children, they are so full of wanting to feel part of the natural world, be part of something, and I think that spiritual thirst or hunger, maybe, is running deep across the world. And what we're all looking for is not some great guru. We've done with gurus. They tend to be have feet of clay, don't they, gurus? I'm talking some are really good. So forgive me, gurus that are good. I, what I mean is we always want to create the, these mythical leaders who are going to be perfect and it seems to me from my limited reading of history that most of those people who are lauded in that way get perverted by that very adulation they get to then kind of lose their track. Sorry, but that's not an original thought. I'm sure we've heard it a dozen times, all of us. So I think there is a spiritual hunger which movements for civic society and muscular localism can only enhance. Thereby, I think a healthy future is about creating societies in which everybody feels needed, they have a sense of belonging, and yet at the same time, they're not forced to be the same. They're able to express themselves as individuals, but also express themselves as part of the collective. And part of the problem with especially middle-aged men is they want to prescribe how people should behave at all times. If people aren't hurting each other, let them do what the hell they want, but let them also pick up the responsibilities for being in society and so feel an, uh, that sense of uh, belonging in the heart of it. Have I answered your question after about an hour? That was really <laughs> terrible. That, that, Lovely. That no, thank you. Um, that was wonderful. <laughs> Um, back in 2017, a river in New Zealand um, was granted the same legal rights as a human being. And you've talked about the significance of this over the years. So can you tell us why that's such an important moment? 
I think we've talked about, you know, the things that we thought were old fashioned or hippie or whatever. Mycorrhizal association of the soil, the wood wide web. We all thought it was hippie stuff. It can't possibly happen that trees talk to each other. Now we know they do. The human biome, the Japanese said that there were two brains 30 years ago and we all laughed. We thought the Japanese were funny fellows. Now there won't be a single doctor in Britain who doesn't recognize that the human microbiome in the human tummy is an incredibly potent, call it a brain if you like, in terms of regulating the human bodies and responses to so many physical things. Wherever we look, our certainties and our conservatism demonstrates that we're really not very aware. We're so obsessed with being distracted by the various pleasures put in front of us that we don't understand that we're part of a much bigger web, a bigger weft and weave, if you like. And I think the way we are going is is towards understanding, hopefully with the help of 5 and 6G technology and LEOs, you know, low orbiting satellites, that we'll be able to understand a little bit about how the natural world really does organise itself, how animals really do move. I mean, who knew that deer could communicate in some way that we do not know over a period of a, a, a space of 600 miles. They know to move at the same time. How's that possible? How's it possible that slime moles can, when asked to take the shortest route across a map of Tokyo, can perfectly predict the underground stations in about an hour and a half when it took engineers in Japan to take over eight years to do the same thing? How's it possible that goats on Mount Etna know how to gallop off the mountain more than six hours before the most refined machinery in the world can tell you that Mount Etna is about to spew volcano. It's going to spew its ash everywhere. I'm quoting a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm horribly ripping off a marvellous writer called James Bridle, who wrote a book which recently came out called Ways of Being, which is an exposition on the future of computing. It uses Alan Turing's thinking as the basis, its starting point for the conversation, in which he says that Alan Turing, who he said there were two types of computer, the I think I'm just getting right. One is the C type, which rather confusingly is, an, is a, a code for a, the automatic computer, the type on which we are talking to each other now. And then there is the Oracle computer, which is a computer that is set off to look at the world on its own. We can only ask questions of it. Um, and he said the joke, of course, is that stupid humans think you can create artificial intelligence on the sort of computers we're using. And he said you can only create more and more mathematics answering questions which were simply limited by your ability to understand the world. Therefore, you're not going to reveal very much that's new. So um, the argument of the book is that a civilized existence is where humans are working with uh, the natural world to understand the world in which they live so that they're keeping a very low planetary impact and a doing good things, if that's the right way, in terms of the way all animals are finding their particular niche. So I'm riveted by that thought, and I hope I live long enough to see it happen, because I'm absolutely certain that the redemption of humankind is going to come at the moment it is humble in the face of existential danger, to actually listen to whether nature is speaking to it, but it is actually being willfully deaf. And I think that is a really interesting place for us to start thinking. With Blue Earth Summit, we are asking, well, I'm asking those that I'm interviewing on the build-up to the summit in October, um, what ties you to the cause and what's your blue thread? So what excites you to get out of bed in the morning? I'm one of the luckiest people alive. I, I get to do 
wonderful things with by and large wonderful people in beautiful places and when I get taken to places that aren't beautiful it is usually in the concept of can you help try and make them beautiful uh, so I have a joyous life so what gets me out of bed in the morning is that I love being in bed don't get me wrong I love being in bed uh, but when I get up I get that that wonderful feeling of there's another day coming it's great and I really do I, I you know how lucky am I you are very lucky, actually. And um, I picked up your book, I've got it next to me, The Lost Gardens of Heligan from the library the other day. And I was I was reading through that because, to my surprise, you actually haven't written that many books. I was expecting to get like 20 up on Goodreads. And I thought, oh, God, how am I going to prep for this interview? Um, but all those years ago, when you, when, um, you took a machete with your friend, did you think that the Eden Project and the success of all your recent projects would come out of those cold days in the garden? No, of course not. At that time, I was just thrilled by an adventure, which was a, a, like being a little boy. I, I was getting the chance to go into a place that had been buried up for all these years. My background as an archaeologist and anthropologist, it was like being invited to play. I was, I was cutting away but while I was cutting away I could see structures hidden I could see huge trees that were nearly buried up but they were giving away the secret of a once great garden and it was just the most romantic thing I mean I can't tell you how thrilling it is to start uncovering this place that's been a sleeping beauty and um, the whole adventure of getting it restored and building a team to do it and doing the television you know, one thing I learned, I was in the music industry for 10 years. The one thing I've learned, which I, when I go and speak to students or I also speak to a lot of older people who sometimes feel their best years are behind them. And I, I say, look, no, no, all you need is an adventure to get you going again. And um, part of the problem most people feel is that they think marvellousness happens somewhere else. They can't actually believe that great and marvellous things will happen to them. And I, I say that the secret of life is to really believe that marvellous things can happen here. What's really interesting is when we did Heligan, when, when Heligan opened up, you suddenly saw all this wealth pour into the local town of Mevagissi and St. Hugh and whatever, because it was worth actually having a good bakery and it was worth doing this, it was worth doing that. And people invested with the Eden project. The, the reason I came up with Eden was I just had this vision for doing something much, much bigger than Heligan. Because what I'd learned from doing Heligan is that there are so many people in need of an adventure. When you go back to what we were saying about belonging and meaning, almost everybody has a tiny grain, a seed of disappointment in them at the person they thought they might be one day or the adventures they thought they might have. So if you can create an adventure really big so that a lot of people can have that adventure with you and each can have their time in the spotlight, you can get people to do marvellous things. Part of the problem is that most of the dreams that are peddled in our civic society are too mediocre. They're not marvellous enough. They don't actually satisfy your hunger to become the person you dreamt you could be and so redeem yourself from that disappointment. So Eden for me was important because I I saw a picture. I was totally convinced we were going to be able to do it. And the reason I was convinced was because I learned as a young man that the dreams that I had are not so special. As opposed to, wow, Tim, you're such a visionary. No, I'm not. I'm like every 12-year-old in a school. Every 12-year-old dreams of building an Eden project or a big dam or a mad Ludwig castle, you know, all those things. That's what we humans, us dreaming apes, are. And therefore, I thought, if you can dream it, I bet my, I bet my, I say it's a bet, it was a cert. I knew that if I could describe a vision 
that was like Eden is. It's so stunningly unoriginal. It really is unoriginal. We've always dreamt of magic lands that are buried in the craters of volcanoes, haven't we? That's what we do. It's that kind of magic world. That if you can imagine bringing something like that to life, I knew that in an art, if I was able to articulate what it could become, that despite its bonkersness, other people would want it to come true too. And it's like Tinkerbell theory, isn't it? Once everybody wants something to happen and they all clap their hands, Tinkerbell's alive. And that's how Eden Project was built. And that's how we can change our country. That's how we can change the world. But it's actually got to be that we've got to stop allowing politicians to talk about the future being the art of the possible. It's actually about the art of what is the limit of possible you can possibly imagine and then go 10%. And I think we just, us imaginative apes, need to liberate ourselves to imagine a better world, much better than the people we put in our political ruling class. Or if they have got that imagination, the ruling class, give them permission to let, you know, let out their belt, undo a button on their shirt and stop being so stuffed. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.